Ethan, what was that you just said? <laughs> I said that I support a fully diverse and inclusive set of characters in all the new reboots of TV shows, okay? I'm going to put that as the intro. I like how, yeah, Craig, the thought police popping in here. Now recording. Somebody's recording us. Someone's listening. Look, we, we all have a father in heaven that's listening. I mean, I was I was thinking more like the FBI guy on my phone, but, you know. Oh, well, that too, I guess. Yeah. Big Brother, I, Father Above, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, when you don't believe in God and that someone cares for you uh, and that, you know, you live in a fully imminent plane, the only thing that can truly care enough to listen to you talk and your stupid ideas is the FBI. And that becomes your, that's your dad, you know. I'm, I'm just imagining a five-year-old, like, getting on his knees and on his bedstand and praying to the FBI. <laughs> oh, that's great. Dear FBI, did you come to my birthday party? I'll bet they would. I'll bet if a five-year-old thought the FBI was his father and sent a letter to them, they would do it for the publicity. I'll 100%. bet they would do that. I mean, you work for the government. You could say if they would do something like that. They, need all, the, they that. need all the good press they can get. I don't work for that part of the government. But no, I, I'm just imagining like a kid's like mom tells him, you better be careful what you say because the FBI is always watching. <laughs> FBI, how do I get on a watch list so that if I get in trouble, you can you can come and help me? Yeah, it's just like this, you know, that's the future. We all have our government handlers who just watch out for us, sort of like therapists, but they're sterner and they can put you in solitary, like time out. Yeah, Brevin, the stuff you just said was so shocking, I don't have any response. So, yeah, let's move yeah, on. I kept trying to risk. There's only so much we can do. <laughs> well, if nothing better comes up, I'll put it at the end. Beautiful. Audio magic deceiving us into thinking that they were discrete events as opposed to one continuous thought. Ooh, that was a nice little mathematical thing you just did there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And here we are about to do an episode and finally, finally finish off the rise and triumph of the modern self. It has been almost a year. I just checked our first episode on this. Well, uh, at least I finished editing it on October 24th, 2022, which means we recorded a few days before that, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, it has been a year-long journey. Gentlemen, how are we feeling? Feeling good. This has been an awesome book to read through. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been good. I mean, we took a bit of a break in the middle there, but um, it's definitely been our more our most current book out of everything we've read, but I think it's, yeah, it's been good. The interesting Here's thing is, doing next. the interesting thing is that this is the first book of the several that we've read where we all decided to pre-read it so that we would know whether or not it was a good book to do for the podcast, as opposed to the other ones where we did them actually chapter by chapter as we went along. Mm -hmm. And despite that, the intention being, obviously, that if we've all read the book, we can just sort of blaze right through it. We took just as long, if not longer, than all of the other ones <laughs> that we had to read chapter by chapter. And like 600 page Ian McGilchrist book. Yeah, let me tell you, a, a chapter of McIntyre or half a chapter of McGilchrist or whatever we did on a week-by-week -week basis or like a bi-weekly basis or whatever we were doing, that is rough. That is like a, that's a grad course right there on the side. Yeah, for real. Compared yeah. Truman, oh, Breeze, just so easy to get through. Absolutely. Uh, but speaking of getting through easy things, Sam, what are you drinking right now? Yeah, I have a, uh, a nice glass of red wine. Um, I don't even know what kind of wine it is. It's it was it's a wine from a couple of days ago. We were having dinner and wanted some wine with dinner, and that was the cheapest bottle we had on our shelf. It is not good. We knew it wasn't good, actually. The, it was, the friend gave it to us probably about a year and a half ago and said, "Yeah, here's a bottle of wine. It's not good." Um, and she just needed to get rid of it. And so we've been saving it for when we needed some not good wine, which struck this week. So. I like how you knew that it, it was the cheapest bottle of wine that you had, which either suggests you only buy really expensive wine and then you and then your Not friends true. give you like shitty wine. Or the alternative is that you have like your wine shelf actually still has all of the little price tags on it. So you can go and just like say, hmm, let's see how much wine shall we drink tonight? Or, uh, you know, what's this going to cost us? But or alternatively, just to make sure, Sam, that wasn't prune juice that your friend gave you, right? 
It is not prune juice. No, I would, I would know by now. It's not prune okay. juice. It, your your friend has. Okay, good. Your friend has, you know, decency yeah. and, and morals, unlike some. I, I think it's. I think it's supposed to be a pinot, pinot noir. I mean, I will but. say the prune juice incident was entirely the working of my lovely wife, who I will brought us no prune? insult to. Yeah. Okay. So very briefly for our our listener, the prune juice story is at a raucous philosophy laden wine ponged college party that we all attended with just the coolest cats in town my wife then girlfriend decided to bring a bottle actually fiance probably uh to bring a empty bottle of wine and fill it with prune juice that they had for some reason i don't even remember why and they brought it and said hey we got this really great wine who wants to try it and steven being the gallant gentleman that he is that that he is uh was and and, and still is i should say Tasted it, was like, oh, yeah, that's good. While clearly, like, suffering from being, you know, forced to drink prune juice. Meanwhile, the other guy who who had it was ran around saying, this wine is corked. This wine is corked. So all that to say, Stephen, you suffered the indignity with gallantry and nobility. And the incident only speaks to your character. In fact, it was an opportunity for you to prove your chivalry. And you came through the test, uh, you know, in, in, in shining armor. As they say. Oh, sorry. I've just received a correction because I'm being loud. Uh, it was beet juice, not prune juice. Oh. oh, man. No wonder it tasted so bad. I thought it was prune juice and it just tasted particularly bad for some reason. Beet juice makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, that really does. That was that was foul. I may have come through morally righteous, but my mouth was wishing that I weren't. Did you drink the entire glass? I mean, I, I think I oh. vaguely do remember this happening, but I was, I, I was on in a different I part forget, of the room. I think I, like took a sip and like i'm guessing my eyes just bulged out of my out of their socks but i was like that's great and then like kind of kept pretending to sip at it and then desperately looked for a place to like put the glass leave it behind and never look back <laughs> I, I forget all the details but i also remember it was it was not only your wife but one of her friends as well both of whom like just looked at me with these like baleful innocent eyes as they were like deceiving me it was it was a it was a tough catch twenty two. Never trust a woman. That's what I always say. Word. Mm. All right, Stephen, what are you drinking? Not beet juice. Not beet juice. No, I am enjoying a lovely glass of rye whiskey. Mmm. Oh. Indeed. 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 Very nice. Well, Stephen, that makes you the fanciest person here tonight. Because as for myself, I have a lovely glass of uh, tea, but not just any tea. This is candy cane green tea. You see, I got the. It was such a thrill to kill Summer, put him into an, an early grave to proclaim his death and dance over his ashes, that I decided I might try the same with fall and just usher in winter a little bit early. So we'll see if it has the same feeling. I feel like I have to try it at least once. Fall is my favorite uh, season, so it is a little bit like Old Yeller. But, you know, we do what we have to do for, for, for the content. I, I just want to clarify, though, you are having, in fact, a non-alcoholic beverage. This is true. However, it is in my The Catholic Gentleman mug, uh, and it's actually steaming hot, not just like warm water, room mine temperature water hot. that you drink all the time. Wait, 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 wait. No, my tea was right, nice. Let's get right into the content for this week. <laughs> we are going through the last two chapters of Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, first is chapter 10. Uh, and then we'll get into the conclusion and a little bit of wrap-up. Hopefully keep it relatively short and snappy, uh, at least as compared to, you know, all this stuff about, you know, non not drinking alcoholic beverages and whatever that was. I don't I, I wasn't really paying attention. Uh, but anyway, uh, Sam, take it away. Sure. So I have what's one of the more, um, I mean, the final chapter of the book before his conclusion, which is uh, The Triumph of the Tea. And this is particularly looking at um, a review of the modern history of the LGBTQ plus movement. This chapter has garnered plenty of controversy, uh, and but I also think it's a core a core part of his argument, so worth reviewing. So we'll just go through the arguments here. He identifies the core commonalities between the um, five conflicting letters in this acronym as um, all focusing on the psychological and um, sexual terms of understanding the self. So all the categories that he's been building up over the course of the book culminate in, in this movement and in its way of understanding self. And this is indeed the expressive individual and psychological man going back to his first chapter where he 
um, articulated those, those concepts in Taylor and Reef. Um, he then points out that this movement is not necessarily homogenous. The many different uh, lifestyles of identities captured here are not necessarily in complete agreement. And so he spends a good chunk of the middle chapter looking at ways that they actually have historically um, been in conflict with one another. Uh, from a philosophical perspective, the the concept of queerness and transgender assumes that gender is rather fluid, or at least not um, fixed in in the physical nature, uh, more more in a uh, in an emotional and personal realm. While the uh, lesbian and gay movements assume that it's quite fixed, and that it is merely an expression of that person um, towards other people of fixed genders. Even those categories can be broken down a bit more because he looks at the uh, conflict in the 1970s and 80s, especially um, Adrian Rich, uh, a feminist author who heavily critiqued the um, male uh, gay rights movement because it didn't, it, it basically was an embodiment in her eyes of the patriarchy and not necessarily a movement against, which is the lesbian rights movement, um, a little bit less popular, but that was actually a far firmer contradiction. Um, these movements only became united throughout the 80s as on a shared sense of victimhood, particularly with the um, AIDS crisis, um, bringing gay men into the forefront of our society as victims of this terrible um, situation. Um, he then moves on to the integration of transgenderism into the movement. And he points out that this is a bit of a departure, it requires much more of a departure in order to accept. There's, first of all, you must completely detach sex and gender in order to accept um, transgenderism as a valid category. Um, and at that, this states a complete buy-in to expressive individualism, something that Truman sees that our society has done. Ultimately, these uh, groups find unity through, in his eyes, a shared sense of victimhood, um, a common interest in destabilizing society's heterosexual norms, which are inherently um, oppressive to these groups that uh, cut across those, and finally, a convenient coalition for political and legal lobbying. Uh, they're looking for a lot of the same protections legally, and so it works well for them to cooperate, even if they disagreed historically. He particularly focuses on the dispute between lesbianism and transgenderism um, as being two inherently contradictory forces. Um, looking through the writings of Janice Raymond, we see how women and women's rights are actually subverted by the, the transgender movement, at least from her perspective, because those who are uh, transgender women do not actually experience life as a woman does fully. Um, they're merely taking on parts of that role. And it um, delegitimizes the, fur, the, the, the more uh, concrete biological aspects of being a woman. Ultimately, this acceptance of transgenderism leads to an end of stable categories. Um, it undermines, first of all, the, the aims of the lesbian, gay, and bisexual movements, but it's also based directly into Nietzsche, Nietzsche and Foucault. And we actually see writings of um, mo modern gender theorists who are directly citing Nietzsche and Foucault as um, um, authors here. Uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexuals must assume heterosexuality at least as a concept a concept that they might that they wish to contradict as a norm but still a concept that exists and according to butler uh this must be done away with so he then concludes by looking at where our modern limits have shook out we have the the lgbtq and now we've added a few more acronyms to that but it's still quite limited um and those limits at least seem arbitrary. They can be historically explained, but there's no reason why this doesn't extend into other places like polygamy, or even he goes even to pedophilia or um, love of animals. I mean, really disgusting practices, but there's no reason why those things should be um, excluded from uh, the, the current norm when there is no um, when there's no there's no firm standard to exclude them. Ultimately, uh, his conclusion is that this movement must inherently remain as an anti-culture, uh, something that's intrinsically against and um, against whatever our, our current norms are, and also is, um, is amnesiatic. It must be constantly forgetting its own history and only based in the present and um, fighting for its present aims. So in addition to that conclusion, he also talks a bit more about where it results in our societal losses, uh, primarily from a shift in power away from parents and onto the child, 
um, because children are exalted in this view as having far stronger individual rights. And that empowers governments and medical professionals to, um, to make more decisions for that child, um, which leads us to his, in what he sees as the present day. So a lot of pieces in this chapter, a lot of history going on here, and definitely a lot of um, unpopular opinions. But overall, I think it's a very helpful observation and also something that we really don't see much investigation of. I mean, we talk a lot about Stonewall. I mean, especially being in, in New York City, we're, we spend quite a get, bit of time in the West Village and it's quite exalted as a very important site. Um, but beyond that, there's not much conversation socially about the, um, about the history of this movement. So I found it was helpful <clears throat> and a good conversation starter, um, even though I'm sure it will draw, um, draw heat. So, Brevin, where does he take this in the conclusion? Thanks, Sam. So his conclusion, which he calls a uh, concluding unscientific prologue, he sort of tries to take a step back and look forward to the future in a couple different ways. The first is taking a step back to look at the project that he's just finished. He started off to answer, you know, the question, how did we get to the point where someone can say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And in this last chapter, that was his, he finally got to his answer, tracing the steps of expressive individualism all the way up to the present day through a history of ideas through various thinkers across time. But he does have a note that's pretty self-reflective. He says, you know, that there's a odd masochistic pleasure to always decrying the times and the costumes of the day, that it's a therapeutic, uh, ironically, exercise to undertake, to just look at everything. Ah, here's everything that's bad, and here's how we got here. So he acknowledges that his narrative that he's drawn for us is provisional, it's incomplete, it doesn't look at everything that could be talked about. It ignores, in particular, the effects of technology and institutional changes. Across time, it very much does focus on ideas. This is a history of ideas. But nonetheless, he sticks to his guns that the time that we're living in is quite unique in the sense that culture is liquid and full of plastic people. The core reality of the present day that he wants to highlight, he takes back to Taylor and the idea of the secular age, that everyone now unavoidably chooses to be what they are. And he admits that this has some advantages. There are some good things about that. It's not all negative. Valuing individuals is not an inherently negative thing. The problem is, is the detachment from a larger order that has happened alongside the increased value of individuals. And here I'm reminded of our article uh, in the last episode talking about paganism and sort of the full Christian morality as a string of beads on a necklace, and you can't just take out little bits without removing the whole thing. The secular age that we live in inherently changes how we talk about things like LGBT, is that it's not about behavior, but it's about identity. Practically speaking, the church and Truman would like to not talk this way, but he says this is the way that we talk about it as a matter of, of daily course. That's the water that we're swimming in. And he highlights an example of a book talking about the cost of chastity and just points out that historically in the church, this isn't, that wouldn't be considered a thing. There's not a specific cost to chastity. It was expected. It was a norm that everyone was expected to follow in the definition of chastity as defined by the church. And so with the change in language, with the secular age that we live in, all of that makes it very difficult to sort of recapture and speak about precisely what we mean. However, he also says that just because things are new, just because this is a new reality that we live in, and that it's different from the previous one, that doesn't mean that it's not real, that it doesn't have psychological costs, that it doesn't have things that people have genuine concerns about. And because they're not unreal, they do need to be treated with a level of seriousness. They can't be dismissed. They're a reality to be confronted. So then looking forward at the ways that things that these ideas that he's talked about are being confronted and will continue to be confronted. He first looks at several topics, uh, sexual morality, gay marriage and transgenderism, and then religious freedom. For sexual morality, he thinks that it's currently in the midst of a rethink, that with Me Too, Gen Z attitudes, there is a growing consensus that the consent model as the be-all, end-all 
of a sexual ethic is insufficient, that there has to be more to the story than that. And I can think of several books off the top of my head that have attempted to start making that case from a secular perspective, that there's more to the story. Uh, but to date, there isn't a single, I would say, larger idea that has succeed that has succeeded it completely. It's still very much in, in flux and under conversation. Two outgrowths of expressive individualism that he thinks um, have very different amounts of staying power is that he thinks gay marriage is here to stay because all of the aesthetic cultural advantages work against any changes to the status quo. It's cemented in um, and fairly confidently settled in its place. He doesn't see that any changes will happen there. Transgenderism, however, as Sam noted, is a bit more unstable. It's it's less private. It's a public. It's a topic of public conversation of presidential ambitions. It can. It's a decisive plank in many of uh, the candidates' platforms, pro or against, which just shows the diversion of possibilities that it could end up going down. Um, and then he also looks to the future, perhaps a little bit wish-castingly, uh, that the potential liability of experimental procedures performed now might result in sort of a catastrophic end to it, just from a capital financial perspective, insurance perspective. Religious freedom, he's fairly negative about. He sees that there is less and less commitment to it, both because of the cultural pressures that work against it, against religious freedom in the public sphere, but also because there are fewer and fewer people who care to uphold it. It's in some kind of inherent contradiction with expressive individualism. It can't be fully integrated because the premises are so completely at odds w with each other that one will have to give ground to the other. And he thinks that, at least as things stand now, religious freedom will be the one to lose that fight. He then looks briefly, tries to put out a few prescriptive arguments for the church, uh, just trying to find ways forward. This isn't, this isn't his main focus, um, and it's fairly sparse, and I, but I do think that we have some interest in, in talking about it. But his ideas are basically just to reflect on the importance of aesthetics to the arguments that, church, that the church makes in this arena of expressive individualism, sexuality. Uh, but specifically to not buy into the argument, essentially to reject the premise that it makes, because what, if the church accepts it, it will lose the arguments simply because it's in the expressive individualist realm. Secondly, he says to be a community, very common call that we see. Three, he wants the Protestant church in particular, he's writing from a Protestant perspective, to embrace natural law and the importance of the body. Um, and then four, he notes correctly that you know, minority status for the church isn't a new thing. It's just been a while, uh, at least in the West. But it's something that the church has survived before and will just have to survive in a new way um, if the future that he sees as inevitable continues to come down. And with that, that concludes Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. That's where he leaves us with a few uncertain paths forward into a brave new world. Uh... But this is not the first time we've encountered A Brave New World. We've encountered several of these in After Virtue, in The Master and His Emissary, in Amusing Ourselves to Death. So we thought now would be a great time to look over this whole book uh, in its own context and also in the context of things that we've read previously and try and hash out you know, with our sort of well-trained and attuned minds to deciphering those books that you know, masochistically or therapeutically uh, talk about how everything is horrible and bad. Uh, so, Stephen, I will leave it over to you to walk us through. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been a fascinating book. I think we've all gotten a lot out of this. Um, he paints out a, a very intriguing history that may or may not be subject to criticism from outside, but, I mean, seems to be a fairly compelling one. Um, so, I guess my First question um, to kind of launch the conversation would be, do we just do we agree with the narrative that he gives um, and do we agree with his prescription? And to, to kind of kick off maybe a bit more of a particular direction. All right. He includes a few bits that he left out in a fairly hand wavy way, which I would prefer to read in full. But some people would prefer me to summarize. Basically, art architecture are now denigrated. They repudiate past forms of beauty. Um, uh, so social media such as Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, etc. Turn light life into performance art. Reality TV implies that authenticity, however crude, is now or 
is is a good thing. So like expressing your inward thoughts and feelings, even if they express yourself to be a vile person, is actually going to going to make you a more authentic person. He says that in a much more eloquent way than I ever could. Uh, but do, and so one of the weaknesses of doing something like that is pretty much it, it's the equivalent of saying, well, now I know this might be an objection, but and then proceeds to ignore that objection and act like you've treated it. Do we think that this constitutes a serious flaw within his argument? Do we think that he's missing anything that he should have covered in more depth? I don't think so. I mean, I think that it only, I'd love to hear his thoughts on all those things, but also I think that we've heard, like, we've heard what he would say about that from other authors, right? Like, uh, amusing ourselves to death. That looks at television and reality TV and our new way of, like, of of basically communicating. Um, Master Denisary touched a little bit on the changes in, in art and what that means for our society. I mean, I think that all, like, I think if anything, this kind of the fact that there you can just easily rattle off, you know, a half dozen topics that are so obvious, like like are are clearly connected to this phenomenon only reinforces like that there is something going on here. It's not just it's not just one angry guy shaking his fist at the new the the you know, the new kids these days, but there's actually something whole going on um that we should note. So yeah, no, I think it strengthens his argument. Yeah, I don't think trying to touch on like you could touch on why most things are all collapsing and horrible and bad but if you try and do all of them then it's just a little bit too long i haven't read secular age but that's possibly what happens there i don't really know uh no but exactly what sam said i mean other people have treated those problems carl truman has treated a lot of these problems he blogs incessantly at first things makes media appearances he's not this isn't his only word spoken into the public arena by any means um, I would say, though, this this does bring up sort of an interesting meta point that I was mulling over about these, for lack of a better term, let's say apocalypse narratives, sort of like what is the collapse of things and then what comes after. After Virtue's trying to look into this, Master and his emissary is trying to look into this, Amusing Ourselves to Death is trying to look into this, um, Ideas Have Consequences is trying to look into this. All of these things are you know, looking into the question of what has gone wrong from their own particular angles. They each have their own little vision uh, down to the core of something that is not right. And I think it's, you know, pretty self-evidently true that there is a diminishing margin of return when you try and link everything into your argument, perhaps uh, see ideas have consequences in his opinion on jazz. It's like, you could just not say that you don't like jazz and your argument would be that much better for it. Um, so a- anyway, the point is when we eventually write our book on this, we'll just need to make sure to right size our apocalyptic thought to like picking the things that we think are particularly bad and not do all of them at once uh, to his project in particular. I mean, he does do I'm, I'm mildly conflicted for his core question being what it is. The chapter is honestly pretty short. He spends a lot of time working up to expressive individualism tells a relatively short story in his uh, final chapter. And sort of to, to Sam, what you were talking about earlier is it's not necessarily the case that is made on its own terms. Like it, it's not a view from inside. It's not very investigatory. It, it feels like it, it feels a little bit cursory. Like you can see how it all leads up to that point, but it's less a story of, the insight, like what is the story that the movement tells itself? I think that's what I would be more interested in. Now, he would say, probably correctly, that it's amnesiatic, but I would like to see that. And I think that honestly might be one of the biggest weaknesses of this is that it just doesn't quite go into enough detail and enough sort of um, uh, em- like empathetic detail, almost. Like understanding before telling the, the story. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, that is the problem of history, right? Um, it's that you, he, he even brings this up um, with one of the other kind of uh, adjacent problems of history is kind of how far back do you want to go? If you want to explain something that happened, well, how far back do you do you want to go? And I would say similarly, there are always going to be these adjacent factors that you should be bringing up. And eventually you just kind of have to cut the cord and say, no, we're not going to be bringing this up. We're not going to be bringing this up, even though it is technically relevant. We think we're we're sufficient. Um, to your point on the empathy, or at the very least trying to 
understand the narrative that this movement kind of tells itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you are right. It does seem to be rather bereft of... He has one fascinating correspondence with... Um, uh, just a sec, I have it marked down. Uh, he does have one correspondence with uh, Rosa Rosaria Butterfield, who's a former lesbian activist and a professor of queer theory. Um, and they seem to be at least relatively in alignment. But having more of those sort of insights... Um, or even just insights with people who straight up disagree with him. So he quotes a lot of feminist texts, um, but it would be more interesting to see him quoting from, say, transgender texts or what have you, which, given that this is a relatively new movement, it's not too surprising that there aren't any real seminal texts yet, but it still would have been good for him to kind of flesh that out more, especially given that this is kind of the climax of his narrative. Um, and especially given, I mean, he's saying, and I think I'm inclined to agree, the philosophical underpinnings of the LGB and the philosophical underpinnings of the T are in kind of contradiction with each other. It would have been good for him to kind of give a narrative, therefore, of the LGB, comma, and then the T, um, whereas he seems to kind of have a general narrative that builds up into the LGBT. Oh, and then by the way, they have two separate philosophical narratives. Um, so I, I am inclined to agree. Yeah, and, and I guess my response to that, not necessarily push back, because I think it would be helpful to have more transgender, you know, focused texts and specifically like, what is it, what is that movement saying about itself and how does it identify its own philosophical underpinnings? But he kind of, um, he does go into that. I mean, we're talking like pages like 364, 365, where he is looking, where he points out that most of the writings here are entirely based in anecdotal, like personal narratives. And so you can't really do like scholarship on the subject because that would be to like that alone would diminish the personal narrative aspect. And so he has that one story of like, it's one example of a lesbian living with her partner who then transitions to male. And like, that's, those are the sorts of stories that you get that deal with like the sticky issues. And it's not being hashed out in a philosophical way of, okay, well, what does this mean that she now ontologically is, you know, what is, what is her um, sexuality now? It's much more of a feeling of like, well, I'm queer. That's all I can, that's all I can say I am. Um, and I think that speaks, I don't know, the fact that there isn't that, that, that like academy, at, at least the academic taxes, we would identify them, you know, as more, you know, philosophy folks. Uh, I think that speaks to the core philosophy of it. And I think that he, and he calls that out in this, in, in that chapter specifically. No, that's a, that's a fair point. Certainly um, perhaps the kind of philosophical rigor or the kind of philosophical arguments that we're looking for. Well, that's where expressive individualism comes in and says, no, those sort of philosophical arguments that you're looking for is actually not the proper way of going about it. It's not the proper mode of exactly. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a fair point. I mean, to an extent that's, that's Foucault, right? That it, truth is actually just one group asserting power over another and so us asking for some sort of philosophical rigor is actually us asking for marginalized communities to work themselves into our narrative of power um so yeah fair point i mean as much as i disagree with that weird guy um yeah i mean fair yeah like if if you accept that premise yeah fair enough then it really is just kind of more about uh, about narratives which, to be fair, shouldn't be completely discounted. Like, we should listen to people's stories. But if we're looking to... And, I mean, Truman brings up that point. Yes, certainly don't ignore people, but also let's not forget that philosophical rigor matters. Um. All right, so moving right along. There was an article, I want to say we brought it up, what, three or four years ago? It was a while ago. Um. But it was one of the, those articles that really stuck in my mind. I think it was... It was either Vogue or BuzzFeed, like one of these kind of completely dark horse. We would not have expected them to come out with anything that was like in depth or speaking of philosophical rigor, philosophically rigorous or, or what have you. Maybe not philosophically rigorous. I'm not sure if I could say that much, but like actually quite well thought out. Um, there was an article on the purity movement and kind of its repercussions. Um, and it particularly traced this movement as a reaction to the original sexual revolution of the 60s, um, where basically its narrative was there were a bunch of people who were understandably hurt by a lot of the casual encounters that they had in the 60s and 70s when it was actively encouraged, go sleep with whoever you want, free love, et cetera, et cetera. And you had a lot of people who were quite scarred by this and wanted to shield their children from such heartbreak. And as such, really clamped down the, you know, wait till you're married. If you look at a boy, if you look at a girl without, you know, with any sort of what have you, then you're going to scar yourself or what have you. Um, and, and basically really clamped down on this whole purity movement thing. 
Um, and it, I can't help but see kind of a reflection of that. So we are now living it in a reaction to the purity movement, i.e. we're kind of having a sort of free love round two. Um, albeit particularly within Christianity, from what I'm, I, I gather, there wasn't really such a backlash that took a hold outside of Christianity, at least not a strong one. Um, all that to say, though, do we see the pendulum swinging back, um, either inside of Christianity or outside of Christianity? I mentioned it earlier a, a, a little bit in regards to specifically sort of, you know, sexual ethics and what is sufficient for male-female interactions. Christine Emba is one person who, who comes to mind, who I believe is would count as secular now. But she has a whole book on, you know, rethinking the ethic of consent, that that's not sufficient. You know, maybe we've, we've heard things in recent years about enthusiastic consent, which is sort of just, uh, it's, it's just ever so close to willing the good of the other, which it should actually be. Uh, but it's 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 vaguely vaguely getting there. Um, so I I think there is a recognition in some of these quarters that you know that there that edifice doesn't up uphold itself. I mean that's the that's the third type of culture, third type of society that Reef talks about, which is the one that has to justify itself. And unfortunately, when the self justifications meet reality, it's discovered that they aren't sufficient. They don't hold up under their own weight. Things like masculinity as well in the crisis of, of masculinity. There have been a lot of good stuff on this where whether it's, you know, Andrew Tate or Jordan Peterson, uh, the lack of male role models. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be a man and a woman? All of these are very much in flux and, you know, thousands, if not millions of people, if not billions of people are suffering the consequences of not having of being left in the wake of a reaction that has built nothing in its place, that has built nothing in order to, uh, you know, give the alternative to what it was being reacted against. And I think there are lots of entrepreneurs in these spaces that are taking advantage of that gap. But again, I don't think the the, <laughs> the pendulum is not moving back and forth. It's very much a free pivot. It's going all over the place. And at the moment, we can hardly tell where we are, much less where it will end up in the next few years. Uh, Sam, unless you have something to say, I think that actually pivots quite nicely into the next topic. No, go for it. Um, and speaking of pivots, that actually pivots quite nicely to the next uh, question I had. So there's a uh, atheist philosopher, Peter Bogosian, forgive me if I butchered that last name. Uh, he notes that the culture war has shifted from religion versus not religion, which was kind of 2000s, maybe early 2010s, to now quote-unquote, woke versus not woke, or perhaps better phrased as progressive versus classically liberal. Um, and one of the things I found fascinating was that, it, first, I think that's that's an accurate representation that, weirdly enough, we don't see really atheist versus, versus Christian anymore. Like, that's not as sexy a, a debate as it used to be. Now it really is kind of weird battle lines are being drawn in that you see atheists and Christians siding up on the same side on both sides of the battlefield. But somehow even more fascinating is that he predicts that the next culture war is going to surround old institutions. And should we destroy them and rebuild, or should we preserve them and try to save them from the inside, however that may look? Um, so in the same way that religious and not religious have found themselves on both sides of this new battlefield, he's predicting that you will have the same unfolding in the next battlefield. Okay. So first, do we agree with this? Because I can actually see a world in which that, that, that works out, that you end up with a bunch of conservatives saying this institution has grown so corrupt and so full of the woke or what have you, we got to burn it down and start over and we're going to institute a new religious regime or what have you. Um, <laughs> uh, or, and I can see the the more progressive saying the same exact thing. This, this thing is a remnant of the capitalist patriarchal, insert all of your buzzwords here, needs to be burned down, we need to recreate it. And I can see conservatives and progressives on the other exact opposite side saying equal opposite, saying, nope, we can reform it from the inside, we can make it more conservative, we can make it more progressive, we can make it, but we don't need to get rid of it, we can just make it more. And I, I can see a sort of cultural pivot. I, I see that path forward. I think that's very correct. Um, and yeah, I mean, looking at current events, I mean, what happened, like what happened in the House of Representatives last week is a really clear flashpoint for this, where you see, well, a fringe of one side and then the, the, the bulk of the other side openly rejecting like an institution, like an institutional 
figure and by extension, I mean, really striking at the legitimacy of the institution of the house um, and and just kind of proving a disregard for that. Um, yeah, I think this is fair. I wouldn't necessarily say that I see those sides aligning, which is interesting. Like it doesn't necessarily align with the previous culture war because there's not a philosophical agreement between the two sides. Like I was, I think that like the, as you say, the conservatives and the progressives to use very broad and maybe almost nondescript terms or the terms they don't necessarily hold like value institutions for the same reason. Um, I would also say that to be truly progressive, one must look at institutions with skepticism. And so any institutions that a progressive would wish to would wish to preserve would be more out of convenience, right? If you if you're able to create a a steady social state that's providing for the the um, less fortunate, right? That that's a convenient alliance, but not necessarily the core of the philosophy. Similarly, for a conservative, that you might burn down an institution here or there, but the core of the philosophy of a conservative should be to preserve institutions first. Um, I don't think we see that very fully right now, but I don't know. I guess it's just like, I don't see those, I, I see that being the next culture war. I don't see it necessarily like shifting the allegiances much. I think it's going to remain the two sides. The other part of this to consider is this could theoretically be true if everyone was a good faith actor and many people are obviously not. In which case, the optimal strategy for a radical, whether you your ideology agrees or disagrees with an institution that you know may be philosophically aligned or not aligned with you, the correct course of action either way is just to hollow it out and take it over from the inside. That's destruction or um, preservation is is less a question. It's it's a question of power, and that is the you know the core Machiavellian practical result of a lot of the philosophy is regardless of its high-minded ideals, whether it's right or, or left, this, this both exists, much of it is focused around just get the high ground and then do whatever you want from there. It's, it's far less about anything other than pragmatics. It's just about pragmatics of power. I, I suppose briefly, to, to Sam's point, I don't know, 20 years ago, if you had told me atheists and Christians would be lining up on the same exact side of a culture war, I don't think I would have believed you. Um, be, be, because the states back then were just okay, church and state, or okay, God or no God, is this a is this a force of cultural good or not? Christopher Hitchens or William Lane Craig, like. Whereas I I could see a sort of, and I think more to Brevin's point, I could see a sort of war where it does kind of become one side. They both know that they're kind of trying to destroy these institutions for different reasons. Like let's say the Christian nationalists versus the communists, and they're both like, yeah, let's let's destroy the institutions, um, and then we're going to be the ones that take them over. Um, so I, I suppose in a way it's kind of Machiavellian in that they're both just using each other to take over. Whereas the people on the other side, it's like, okay, well, we want to save the institutions. We have very different ideas of what these institutions should become. It's still very Machiavellian, but they're still at least for the moment kind of on each other's side in that I don't think, or I, I can imagine maybe not. Let's, let's take the stakes down a bit from like the state to Disney. Like I don't want Disney to die versus I want Disney to die because I want something else to come in this place. Either the new Christian homeschool uh, Netflix or the new communist utopia state sponsored uh, Netflix uh, uh, or Hulu or whatever, whatever you want to say. Um, <laughs> uh, we did read that one article that one time about how, uh, we've lost all of our senses of imagination and, and greatness. It's just different versions of Netflix yeah, actually, or Uber. That, that does sound about right. Um, and I, I mean, I could see both woke and not woke taking different sides or uh, taking those two sides of the battlefield. That this is kind of a new dimension that the political compass is split across. I also think, though, that the woke versus non-woke. I, I don't think instinctively. I don't think any kind of uh, atheist Christian alliance will ever hold up for the reason that for the reason that uh truman ids which is that the aesthetics are largely against the old the old guard side and everything the water that we swim in is inherently amnesic so as peter and his brand of atheist goes away they'll be replaced with the next generation of them that are you know that, that were brought up in the current culture and don't remember the old days and so they will have no reason to resist it like he does huh. no that's a fair point um all right so 
I moving on to kind of the last topic I had in mind. Um, so we're going to Monday Night Quarterback things for a second. And we're going to say that you're the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Patriarch or Billy Graham, whoever you may be. And now, assuming we can't keep the peasants from reading an Institute of Glorious Monarchy that bends knee only to His Holiness the Pope, my question is both where do we go from here, but also what would you have done 100 years ago to kind of keep... Christianity uh, kind of on 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 the road that you think would have been best. I would have prayed harder for those first two things that you said uh, is 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 the main answer and the correct one. The first two things you said, the Pope and the Archbishop. I mean, thank you, but <laughs> man, should be he should have included the three, then the Patriarch. We can all agree, keep Billy Graham out of it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is so cynical. I don't. I mean, a hundred years ago, I think it was already we were already down this path. Like, I mean, it's it's just the philosophical framework was already so ingrained. 100 years ago, it was 1920s. I mean, that the jazz age. I mean, this, I mean, if, if we were to reverse this, it would be, it would have to take massive resistance uh, 400 years ago, right? I mean, we're talking like Rousseau and, and enlightenment. So I think this is just the natural byproduct of the enlightenment, honestly. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know what else you do. I mean, maybe on the fringe, like I would say, like the, if if you want, like I, I see your question here about denomination specific. I mean, I think that the Church of England did probably the worst job in handling this, and really made the made, accelerated it in multiple ways, which we can get into if we want. But um, you know that that was one error. I mean, it accelerated this this entire thing through statements on contraception um, and uh, explicitly allowing it as early as 1933, I want to say. Um, so anyway, but beyond that, I don't see anything major that could have shifted. Funnily enough, I think I'm more optimistic than you, if only in the sense that I sort of would like to refuse to believe that William of Ockham decided our fates when he was like, hey, what if nominalism? You know, I mean, that's, that is the sort of logic that, that a pure history of ideas leads you to, is that you do get out of, human agency in in a lot of ways and choices which then just says hey okay so then this question hypothetically could be answerable but i don't know i have no idea uh my my go-to backup for this when the history of ideas fails me i mean okay so history of ideas vatican ii is done very differently sure that's 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 the easy catholic side answer uh to to all of this um uh i don't know all of the yeah i, I mean i'm trying to think like you can't stop World War One. You can't stop World War Two. You can't stop the baby boom and and you know uh, industrialization. Um, but I mean, think the margins maybe that are technology that are technology related. Um, more laying down the line on moral versus immoral technology. Seeing where TV is going, maybe contraception. I think particularly in the Protestant Church, that would have been a very interesting mm -hmm. counterfactual if they had held the line on that with the Catholics instead of caving. That's just a whole another kind of world that sets the that, that would set like a Christian world apart from uh, the secular one in a way that it is very not divided today. And that's that's interesting you say that because I could go either way on that. I could see yes, a nice separator. On the other hand, I could see that only just chasing away the young, particularly in the '60s when the free love movement came out, and that why on earth would I want to stay with this church that's telling me not only can I not have sex if I'm not married, but even if I'm married, I have to be very, very careful about whenever I do it. Whatever the rationale of that, and you can bring up natural family planning and kind of all the other counters to that, to especially to a a society that is starting to buy into this narrative of um, expressive individualism and what have you. I could see that actually backfiring. Um, but on the other hand, I could also see that, especially if the church was able to communicate that in such a way that kind of keeps the frame of reference of sex as what it should be in that it's in the context of potentially having offspring. Yeah, I, could, I, I honestly, I could see that one going either way. Um, I'm, I'm sympathetic with it, though. Um, I think, so I guess denomination-specific belonging to the the Orthodox crowd myself now, officially, woohoo! Um, I think I would say with with orthodoxy, it was primarily a culture club for uh, about the last century or so. Pretty much ever since orthodoxy made it into America, it was prime. It was first and foremost culture club, and then it was religious. Um, and I think I would have 
kept a much heavier hand on that in that this should be religious first and then you get to have your Greek celebration or your Russian celebration or what have you um, simply because the emphasis was so much more on the cultural bits and as such it was not able to communicate its religion or religious sensibilities to its um, young you know typically it's first generation well, was it uh, kind of similar to wealth? Wealth first gen generation generates the second preserves, the third loses it, and frankly, we see a very similar phenomenon with religion because most Orthodox, maybe not most, but a good amount of Orthodox right now in America are converts, and so it would have been nice for that to have actually some momentum with it um, from from kind of the older generations, um, and then across the board. Mm, difficult. I would actually say localism. Um, I think a lot of this could could at least potentially been prevented by um, encouraging people to stay where they're at. Um, so keep churches within walking distance or at the very least driving di uh, distances and emphasize that you should not be passing one church to get to another. Um, being near the place that you love, I think actually would have done a very non-trivial amount of uh, uh, benevolent or benevolence towards churches because then you actually know your community and feel embedded in that community versus this abstract or kind of this abstract idea of shopping for churches. Um, so I, I think that's what, that's what I would say. De denomination specific um, culture comes under religion and across the board uh, localism. Yeah. So then to sort of also talk into this Monday night quarterbacking, um, how about like some some present day quarterbacking? Because uh, he, he does give some ideas of where the church can go. He gives four, um, all of which, from my perspective as a Catholic, seem sort of like remedial, kind of mostly weak tea. But I'm curious what you guys made of his suggestions for ways forward for the church you know to be honest i i actually very much like his idea of just kind of accepting the more second century christianity approach um i think that's a healthy one and perhaps to us it's more obvious but talking with um family members and friends who aren't quite as much into kind of the the more philosophical christianity um trying to convince them that we're actually in post-Christian America or post-Christian West is actually surprisingly difficult. Um, there is some amount of denial that a lot of Christians are still dead convinced that America is a Christian nation. And I think the sooner we accept the fact that it's a post-Christian nation, probably the better. Um, because for, for a few reasons, first the Machiavellian, because it makes us victims. And the woke love a victim narrative and it kind of keeps us out of their crosshairs <laughs> um but it, to an extent it keeps us out of our out of their crosshairs um you know i think we shouldn't go whole hog with it like the more legal pr protections that christians get the the better that said i think the sooner we stop pretending that we're the the cultural force probably the better all right so steven says benedict option sam what do you got yeah, I mean, I also really liked his um, his future for the church being the Protestant here. I think that they're really good, and actually, like, like all four of them are excellent. I think I, I think I finished listening to this book on a plane flight when I was going to meet you guys last year, and I got off the plane and was like, "Guys, this book is amazing! Like, we got to read it." Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, I think especially his his point number three of natural law and um and value of the body and i think by extension of that i you guys know this is my hobby horse by now but the the uh rediscovery and integration of a robust theology of the body i think goes actually a long way um there's a lot there's a lot of angst in the protestant church uh, maybe even among non-philosophical protestants and um furthermore among progressive protestants um, about the way that Protestantism has handled sexuality over the last 20 to 30 years, particularly with, with the uh, purity culture movement and how harmful that has been to, I mean, to basically everyone. I mean, it did not help anyone whatsoever. And so I think that th there's so much literature being published right now about like, what do we do now that we're out of this moment and don't really have, and we're kind of listless. And a large amount of it that I've seen is kind of pointing to some idea of like theology of the body, even progressive sources that don't really know what they're getting at. So I see that as like, I don't know, he says that it's not going to be like, he says the natural law isn't meant to be persuasive. I think it's actually incredibly persuasive. And somebody who 
makes a robust argument for that. Um, and particularly from the Protestant perspective, um, not because you necessarily have to because you're bound by tradition, but because it is revealed clearly in the scriptures. I think that there, that, that takes on a different character and one that is very, um, is very, uh, has potentially widely received. So um, it may be wider received than the current Catholic teachings. So I'm optimistic actually. Well, and-, and Sam with the optimistic neo-scholastic take. I love it. Pessimistic about where we were, optimistic about where we're going. I mean, fr- frankly, Sam, you you say it may, uh, or some, some critics say it's not convincing or what have you. I would say it's a lot more convincing than the typical Protestant response of the last 20 years of, well, the Bible says, therefore, um, I think there's a reason so many people left uh, particularly evangelical Christianity, but just kind of Protestant uh, Christianity, is that they kept getting the answer of, well, the Bible says, well, the Bible says, it's just like, this isn't convincing. Cool, your magic book says this, I'm out. Um, and having a more robust philosophical underpinning for this, as well as, I mean, you can certainly make historical arguments for the veracity of the Bible, et cetera, et cetera, all the typical apologetic arguments that we've heard at, when we were young. But having a philosophical rigor underpinning this, much better. Indeed. Uh well, any final thoughts on this book that we've journeyed our, our way through? Concluding thoughts, last words, uh, Sam. It's good. I mean, I think that those will be my final thoughts, but it gives me, I actually I leave the book pretty optimistic. It seems like, I mean, when you look at the history, it, the, the movement is accelerating at an exponential rate, but it's also inherently um, self-contradictory. And I don't, I don't think we're at the peak at all, but I don't, I don't think it can go on forever. Um, and I think that the expressive individualism is doomed to uh, to to implode on itself. And that maybe that's you know, again optimistic, maybe. But um, yeah, it was a it was a great book, and I would I would strongly recommend it. I also second point, and then I'll I'll see this. But um, it was also a really good like primer, I think, for these really heavy hitting uh, like ethicist philosopher figures, Taylor and McIntyre. Um, I'd recommend this book to people who are like, I've, I've heard about McIntyre. I'm interested in him. You like After Virtue. Should I read After Virtue? And I'm like, I mean, yes, you should. But if you're interested in it specifically from like an application of like sexual ethics, start with start with Truman because it's very accessible. It's a quick read. It's an easy read. But you get so so much language surrounding like the communitarian um, Aristotelian ethics that it would make reading After Virtue so much easier. Um, as like a novice philosopher it's like should you read after virtue yes but not first uh and prepare for suffering uh no the do, do as we do as we say not as we do right yes i think that is a a good point i mean we've we've talked about him before in that he's not an original thinker he's packaging other ideas well and in an accessible way and i think that there's definitely a role for that he is pretty wide ranging. Like I, I think I've grown to appreciate him more over time and all the different topics that he's spoken into or listening to him um, on on podcasts and stuff. He's 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 good at at what he does. This book, I think, I enjoyed. I think I was left with a lot of things lacking. But I mean, he gives himself the eternally true, uh, you know, cop out of this is a provisional narrative. Um, you know, these things do not fall inside the scope of this paper out. So I can't really say much more than that. And he did, you know, decent work with the um, territory that he had. And I would say he moves us ever, ever closer to losing all excuses uh, to not read Secular Age. Stephen. So I've been calling this book the most important uh, book to have been written in the 21st century for conservative Christian circles. Um, I think this is one of the best uh, philosophical histories, if not the best philosophical history I've read. Um, it's I, I guess I, I'm probably the most opt or maybe not optimistic, most praising of this group. Though Sam seemed to be rather optimistic and Brevin marginally, so um, I I think this has been an excellent read. Um, and I, I would also note his pronos- his his predictions have been fairly spot on so far. So he wrote in what late. T- the late 10s early 20s and he predicted that abortion was going to come under pretty severe fire just because the emotive response of seeing a baby 
uh, via ultrasound, for example, or seeing seeing a fetus that looks an awful lot like a human in an ultrasound, really being able to tug on the heartstrings. And indeed, you actually see um, there's an increasing uh, amount of Gen Z who definitely aren't quite as conservative as like a lot of baby boomers and what have you in that the attitude is typically more of, well, I'm not one to outlaw abortion, but I wouldn't get one myself or, or what have you. Um, but you see a more conservative turn or a turn towards a more traditionally conservative view uh, towards uh, kind of in that uh, in that domain. And Truman predicted that. So I would say that he's actually pretty good. He he has a rather intriguing uh, insight into this. Um, so on the whole, I, I think he's done a, a terrific job at both delineating um, kind of where we've been, but also providing some sketches of where we're going. And I'm I'm inclined to, to at least take him very seriously when it comes to this. And I also do agree, we will need to read Secular Age eventually. Well, I know that reading that massive tome will make me frustrated. And when one is frustrated, one tends to rant. Sam, I believe you and I have a bit of a, a joint rant here. Do you want to lead us off? Sure. I mean, this might be also our our whiniest rant. And to, if our listener happens to be older than us, they'll probably laugh at this. But um, the uh, doing life, managing a, a household or a, a, uh, your personal life is, is difficult. See, I'm sure you can attest the finances, rent, all that stuff. There's There are a lot of pieces. It gets exponentially more complicated when you add a second person into the mix, um, where every or decision involves, or a third, yes. Uh, yeah, oh man, you, you want up me there. Um, and so I, 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 how do I put this? The, the phenomenon of the marriage admin meeting is both, of marriage admin meeting is both the, uh, is incredibly satisfying to finish and can also drag on for well over a week as Brevin and I have both experienced over these last, last week, I guess. Would you agree? Not quite the full week, but what I would say is that little things that, you know, should not be that stressful the ones that come to mind in particular are buying airplane tickets as a couple and also needing to figure out the infant lap and you know going cross country and needing to figure out companion certificates and do we pay with miles can we pay with miles what about our our other credit oh no the price just changed blah 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 on and on and on and it is the most nail-biting stressful experience i think that me and my wife ever have. I think that is just about the, I mean, obviously we can't get divorced because we're Catholic, but would we, I think, you know, Jesus would have said, you know, if you leave her for any reason other than you had a fight when you were trying to plan the cross country Christmas, uh, flight trips, you know, like that, that, like that's, that's the, that's the modern equivalent, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it. All of the time, all of the little tasks that, that come alongside daily life. So you're trying to figure out insurance and then also the, tra- the travel coming up and also Christmas plans and also um, the IRS um, being the IRS and all that going on, setting up a budget and you do all that in one evening and it, and it can very easily become difficult. So indeed, indeed. Yeah, there's a rant. I don't I don't think of my finances really at all. Yeah, I'm Steven. Look, I don't get many times to brag over I'm you guys. So I, like, I don't have to do any. <laughs> Look, I got to bragging. Everything just pays for itself. As I'm weeping into my whiskey glass. <laughs> you're just you're just paid to think like we the, the, the I am the society. Society provides you to think um, probably oh. actually the taxpayer has deemed that your ruminations are worthy of several probably like a hundred plus thousand dollars a year all told <laughs> okay so let's call this out there a little i got paid a little more in my internship than i did in grad school not much i'm still tuition. poverty level <laughs> <laughs> oh that is a good point i do get tuition yeah yeah i get paid yeah. to do math guys all right Stephen, tell us what makes you mad or we're gonna feel bad okay all right so i watched the exorcist for the first time uh ever in this this last sunday and it was. I, I can see why it was such a um, kind of uh, a landmark film. It was. It was pretty good. I mean, I think I'm somewhat jaded in the twenty in the 2020s, but when it came out in the 
70s, I think. I can see why it was such a watershed. Um, And it was a vaguely nice tale of two priests. Spoiler alert. Okay, I'm going to spoil things now. Two priests pretty much giving up their lives to save a possessed young woman. Definitely something I would say falls firmly into, at best, Catholic fan fiction. At worst, like someone just borrowing heavily from the Catholic mythos. But a general benevolent tale. Fast forward to The Exorcist Believer, uh, which just came out recently. I have not had the pleasure of seeing and do not have any intention of doing it. And apparently there is a lovely line in it in which the mother of the possessed girl, and I'll emphasize the possessed girl for whom two men gave their lives for, uh, she complains about the fact that she wasn't allowed to witness the exorcism because of the, quote, damn patriarchy, end quote. Never mind the fact that, like, she was absolutely beside herself the entire time begging these priests to help her daughter out or what have you. And now, there are, so there are two ways you can take this. First, the just kind of plain cynical, well, the, the writers just didn't understand this character and therefore need to put it in the line and what have you. And we all roll our eyes and say, my goodness, those writers just don't know what they're doing. But there are some apologists who say, no, this was very intentional because it was meant to demonstrate that this character didn't know what she was getting herself into. And that later in the movie, she actually realized that she was in too deep because she was trying to take part in an exorcism herself and that went south. To which I would say, okay, great. Can we stop having characters though that like, have good things happen to them in the past and then just can't it can't stop complaining incessantly. Like we've seen this, we've seen this a million times. No one likes it. Hollywood, please stop. Uh, like we we like these old characters. Can you stop making them bitter old people? Like that that'd be great. Okay, that's it. Just stop making old characters mean. All right. And on that note, we leave behind Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self uh permanently. And we move on to unexplored territories. Who knows what? We'll just have to see. But for now, and for everyone, here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And we'll see you expressively, individualistically. While rising and triumphing. Yep. I don't usually say something to end when you guys see your weird riffs. <laughs>